Hello again from this side of the internet and welcome to another episode of the Treat Addiction Save Lives podcast. A big thank you going out to all of you wonderful listeners out there who are stopping by to hang out with us for a while. I appreciate you being here. Today we are talking to yet another fantastic guest. It's ASAM's 2024 Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Award winner, Dr. Gabrielle Jones. Dr. Jones was great to sit down with her approach to uh, understanding the unique aspects of individuals uh, and and how you know that shapes their circumstances and perspectives. It was really fascinating. I think you're going to get a lot out of how she approaches patient care. Uh, so let's learn a little bit more about her. Dr. Jones received her BA in psychology at California State University, Long Beach, and completed her master's and PhD in counseling psychology at Oklahoma State University. She's the CEO and founder of Steady Clinical Consultation Training and Development Services, which seeks to improve substance use treatment for historically marginalized populations at the system level. She has an extensive background working with at-risk youth, as well as individuals in the juvenile justice system and their families, and provides training to nonprofit organizations related to substance use and cultural responsiveness in the context of mental health treatment. She's the vice chair for the Miles Hall Foundation, which is uh, an organization committed to creating an alternative to calling the police during a mental health crisis, and previously served as the membership board chair for the American Psychological Association. Uh, She also has a new book. It's coming out next month. It's called Culturally Responsive Substance Use Treatment, a guide for practitioners, students, and organizations. Uh, And now that you're all caught up on Dr. Jones's background, let's dive on into my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Jones. You started out in a very, like a decidedly different field, right? You were a literacy teacher at an alternative school. I think you said you were also uh, working in juvenile corrections, if I have that right. Um, And you were working with kids dealing with everything from gang violence to teen pregnancy to substance use. Um, And and from there, you moved to addiction treatment. So tell me a little bit about your story. What were these experiences like working with that youth population in those settings? And what did your journey from, you know, from literacy teacher to juvenile corrections to addiction treatment look like? Yeah, no, I, every time I think about it, I feel like I uncover more about myself and my own journey. And I think that I've really always enjoyed and respected youth and, uh, what young people have to offer, uh, not only the communities that they are in, but also just us as people, because I feel like adolescence is such a tumultuous time. There's so much going on. You're learning so much about yourself. You're kind of differentiating from your parents and, and figuring out your friend groups. There's just a lot that's going on. And so when I was working in the alternative school, for the continuation school, I saw a lot of that and, you know, wasn't too far from it myself, if I'm being honest, because I was in college. So um, I felt it very intimately, but was also able and had the privilege to kind of see it from the outside looking in. And I know that even in the literacy um, space that I was working in, a lot of the kids were using substances to kind of cope with everything that they were dealing with. And when I went into juvenile corrections, same thing, everything that they were dealing with was, you know, primary, but secondarily, they were dealing with substance use and addiction issues. Um, and so it's not, I wouldn't say it's like the easy way to cope, but it is the prominent and, and common way for for your teens and adolescents to kind of get away from when something is really challenging because they're dealing with a lot of difficult stuff. And to be honest, a lot of medication um, is thrown at them at that age because you got hormonal shifts and changes in your environment and, you know, anxiety is peaking at that time. So 
they're exposed to a lot of substances. And these are things that I kind of discovered and realized as I was going through my career. And it wasn't until I was done with graduate school, I had my doctorate, and I was in my postdoctoral residency where I was in a formalized setting that was addiction medicine and family and children and family. So it was even then it was split. So a lot of times addiction is split and it's kind of in its own little corner doing and the people working in addiction are doing their own little thing. And my role, which has since been eliminated, was both. It was the one time where I could kind of marry both the youth development with the substance use and addiction treatment. And that's where I was, where the light bulb kind of came off where I realized, oh, I've been working in addiction for about 10 years already and not even realizing, you know, putting a face to a name, if you will. And you know, when we talked before, one of the things that I mentioned was that I kind of was running from addiction. I was doing everything else and addiction was the undercurrent. So it, it kind of found me. I didn't find it. Um, it just worked together very fluidly. And I have not looked back ever since. You've touched on it already, but you, you have a background in and you're very focused on community and connectedness. I know you've said you feel like that's something that's missing a little bit from the substance use treatment world and that you want people to feel seen. Um, it feels like, it feels like this idea of community and unity, it's gaining a lot of steam just even in, in like a general societal sense, people are looking for ways to connect with their communities more. Um, and pretty much every person I've talked to now that's struggled with addiction and is in recovery, they mentioned either in passing or they talk at great length about, you know, their success coming from a support system and from a community of people, um, whether it's like an AA meeting where you have a group of individuals and they kind of understand the journey and the challenges. But I want to hear from your perspective. Talk to me about the importance of community and connection when it comes to not only, you know, addiction treatment, but the recovery process as well. Yeah, that's I I feel like people really underestimate what community and connectedness can do for an individual's well-being across the board. Um, When you are in isolation and by yourself and struggling in a silo, not only does no one know what you're dealing with, but no one knows to check on you. No one knows to give you the tools and the resources and the support that you need. And so I, um, years and years ago, again, addiction found me. I did not find it. But years and years ago, I did an interview for the Cochrane study that talks about AA at great length and, you know, the benefits that AA has in community meetings in general. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of community involvement and support. Because we are all communal beings. Like we were not meant to live in isolation. We had tribes, we had, you know, collectives, we had, um, it, it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It just it, people uh, congregating together. Everyone wants to belong to whether it be some form of their identity or a shared interest. People want to belong. They want to have shared experiences, not individualized experiences. And that goes for any form of recovery as well as having someone who gets it, who understands my struggle um, intimately. So that means that you've been in that struggle, too. And though our struggles may look different, um, given given our backgrounds or there may be extra things that come along with those struggles and challenges, we have a shared language, 
we have a shared understanding and we have a shared experience that we can build a relationship off of. And that is literally the foundation of building friendships and relationships. <laughs> like in order to be friends with someone, you got to have something in common. And that's the, the, the seed that kind of helps community grow and expand. And I think that there's extreme and tremendous power and people being able to say, I've been there and I, and, and I'm on the other side, uh, because that gives a sense of hope that you can't just get from reading a book and you can't just get from, you know, doing an assignment. But the key missing piece when it comes to recovery, in my opinion, is that people tend to wash away or dismiss other aspects of an individual's identity at the stake or at the mercy of that connected and shared experience. So we both, we both may be in recovery, but that doesn't negate or um, take away the fact that I'm a woman. It doesn't take away the fact that I'm a black woman. It doesn't take away the fact that I grew up in a very liberal area. It doesn't take away the fact that I'm an only child. I mean, there's so many things about me still that are unique that allow me to connect with others. Um, that tend to get washed away when you talk about building community. It's like, oh, well, we all have to have this one thing in common and nothing else matters. Everything else is secondary. But my philosophy is that they're all interconnected and it makes my experience richer because of the differences as well as the things that we have shared in common. Mm -hmm. This segues kind of well into my next question, but I want to talk about your book. You have a book coming out next month. It's called Culturally Responsive Substance Use Treatment, A Guide for Practitioners, Students, and Organizations. Um, talk to me about this idea of cultural responsiveness and how it kind of ties into community. What does that term mean and what changes do you feel in your opinion are needed to kind of improve you know, addiction treatment and that community building from this culturally responsive perspective? That is a mouthful, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you amazed? Look, I made it. I have highlights and underlines so I can get through it without stumbling over my words. <laughs> Well, let me let me take it in chunks. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, in in its in, in its simplest form, cultural responsiveness means for me responding to the needs of the individual as the indiv individual shares them with me. And for a community or a system, it means responding to the needs of the community or the system as defined and outlined by the community or the system. Oftentimes when we talk about cultural responsiveness, there's this assumption that people go in knowing what exactly the community or the system or the individual across from them needs. So there's an assumption about their identities. And so in my book, I really go into detail first off about historically why that's problematic. Um, a, a lot of people, it's funny because when I started writing this book and I was pitching it to publishers, a lot of publishers initially were saying, well, can you get rid of the first six chapters that, that we want to know the framework? We just were interested in that. And I said, no, the history is really what makes the framework so important. You have to know where you came from so that you don't repeat where you're going. And um, <clears throat> it's critical to kind of dig deep into the historical injustices and inequities that have created the system as it stands today. Uh, because the research is extensive on disparities, racial disparities specifically, uh, when it comes to, um, 
substance use treatment and addiction and statistics and death rates and things like that. But there's a history there. It's not new. A lot of what we're seeing now, we've seen before and we just called it something different or we just ignored it or or put it in a different category. So the first part of my book really talks about the historical issues and that being the core of cultural responsiveness, because again, responding to the needs of the individuals as they define them comes from recognizing and acknowledging their history and not ignoring it. The second part of the book is about really the framework that I developed. So as I mentioned, a lot of research out there is clear on the disparities um, and inequities in substance use treatment, as well as the disproportionate rates of death among minoritized and marginalized communities. And so the framework is an answer to all of those questions because to this point, we don't have that. We just have the, we have the data that shows that this is a problem, but no one's really coming in to say, okay, well, what do we do to address it? How do we deal with it? And so the second half of the book really talks about the how. Um, and I, I find it really important and valuable because there's the core of the framework is lived identities. So it's a combination of your lived experiences and your identities because I can walk through the world and my lived experience may be primary woman and secondary or tertiary black, right? Um, but for another black woman, it may be primary black and secondary tertiary woman, or it may not be either. It may be parent. Um, so the experience that one has really informs their identity. And so that's why it's called um, a lived identities instead of just lived experience or identities, because again, you have to seek that from the person or from the group you're working with to really understand what's important to them and then build off of their identities to make a comprehensive and sustainable recovery lifestyle, which is also a, a part of the framework that I talk about in detail. Hmm. Well, I, I want to ask, cause I know like we talked about you, you have a, experience working in different kind of settings, affluent settings and more the, the lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. But I'm also curious, you've mentioned there's all these different kind of aspects of identity and community. How do you, with, with that kind of variety, right? How do you, do you find it challenging or how do you engage with these kind of different communities to promote awareness and accessibility to addiction treatment services? Is that a challenge or is there a way that you found to kind of identify these parts of someone and who they are and, and how to speak to them and how to speak to their groups and communities? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I have, I, as working in partial hospitalization, hospital, community, mental health, academia, schools, um, and juvenile corrections has really given me, uh, a, a, a toolkit of, of language to utilize. And I think what make it, it's not as hard as it seems. A lot of people, think of that identity as this big, ooh, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want to offend or so on and so forth. Um, but the reality is when we can appreciate the pe when we can appreciate an individual's uniqueness while simultaneously holding that collective shared experience, you that's when people really feel the most seen. Um, so when I ask people about themselves, what do you, uh, tell me what represents you? What are three things that like stand out in your identity? What 
makes Zach Zach? What is it that you really are passionate about? And, you know, if I look in your background, I see that you have musical instruments. So that may be an aspect of your identity that's huge and really valuable. So let's talk about that, you know, and we all know a little bit about everything, you know, we're not, we're consumed with and inundated with information. So just asking you about what instruments you play or, or what you listen to the most automatically creates a shared like, oh, she she knows music. She may not be as into it, but I am. So I can now share that with her in a way that's personal and valuable to me and my identity. And then from there, we build off of it. Like, let's talk about uh, different concerts that you can go to, or do you like concerts, or would you rather watch, you know, an instrumental on YouTube, or would you rather listen and kind of pick apart a song? Like, there are so many ways that we can, tr- like, work around what an aspect of one's identity is that is just fluid and really conversational that I think is is really valuable when we're talking about kind of connecting. That's incredible. I mean, it, you know, the way that you kind of view it is is amazing and it's so in-depth, you know, the way that you kind of dive into to what someone really is and what makes them who they are. But I'm also curious too, like we, we talked about a little bit, you've worked in these different settings. I would love to know your experience working in, you know, some of the more affluent areas and some of those, like I said, those lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. What was that like in those two different settings? And what were the differences you noticed? How did that kind of inform your path in addiction treatment? And what did you take away with you from from those kind of experiences? Yeah, that, you know, it was very, it was challenging for me because for the for a long time when I first realized explicitly that addiction medicine was my world, I held on to the belief that the addiction substance use was the through line Mm -hmm. substance use was what we what everybody had in common and that's kind of where we operated but i kept finding myself struggling because i worked with youth specifically in the affluent and the lower ses area and so the it wasn't it wasn't a through line just because there was substance use in both communities there were just such vast differences that i could not reconcile the same way Um, And so in the affluent area that I was in, it was really about the kids feeling the need to have their parents see them. So this goes back to this identity piece, right? The the kids that I would work with were like, oh, my mom is busy or my parents are always out doing things. And, you know, I'm just kind of left to my own devices. And I would love for my parents to just come you know, they, they want me to get this treatment, but they're not showing up to the multifamily group. And in my head, I was like, well, if you do want your kid to get better, like show up, you gotta be there for them like that. They just want to be seen. They're doing things so that you will see them. And instead of you seeing them, you're putting them in front of someone else to see them. And so that was really hard for me because I felt like, you know, it's not much that needs to be done. It's just something that people didn't want to do in the the affluent areas. And then when I was in the lower SES areas, it wasn't, I mean, first of all, our healthcare system is is quite flawed. Um, So there were a lot of disparities in the affluent area where people had the health insurance and could just go and kind of drop off their kids to get treatment. Whereas in the lower SES area, we were trying to piecemeal treatment programs together to try and get 
you know, people in because they had an etch out for their insurance policy. And so they couldn't see me. And so I had to see them under a different code and it was all of this stuff. But what I saw was the parents were so actively involved. I mean, my multifamily groups were packed. They were not kidding around. They, they were definitely wanting to be there. And the kids, their experience and what they were dealing with were emotion, like a lot of emotional stuff. So whether it be they saw family members being killed or they had experienced some really extreme trauma at home or um, they were needing to support or be a parent slash sibling to their younger siblings uh, to help out their parents, or they had been bounced around in foster care. I mean, there are so many things, the myriad of things that they were experiencing and dealing with that contributed to their substance use. So it wasn't necessarily that they weren't seen so much as it was that they were inundated with life. They were uh, being what what we would call like adultified children. They were um, expected to do more and have more and be more than they were. They weren't able to just kind of live their lives as youth. And so, um, like I said, between the the medical system being kind of flawed and and the challenge that that lower SES um, kiddos had to experience trying to get into treatment versus the more affluent kiddos. Um, just the the reason for why they were sitting across from me was so vastly different, um, even though across the board they were using substances. Right. It, it, it This kind of leads into another question because um, you're the uh, vice chair of the board of the Miles Hall Foundation. Um, and I'm going to read this is an organization whose goal is to advocate for individuals and families impacted by mental illness, educate communities to reduce stigma and bias surrounding mental illness and prevent criminalization and excessive use of force by law enforcement during mental health emergencies. Um, talk to me a little bit about your work with the foundation and how do you think that your work here has kind of influenced or informed your perspective on um, relationships with with patients with addiction? Yeah. So, yeah, the Miles Hall Foundation is is a huge um, part of me and, and my life and my world. Um, well, as you mentioned, we do a lot of work around prevention and advocacy and raising awareness about mental health crises and um, police involvement and violence as a response and result of a mental health crisis, specifically for minoritized communities. Um, Miles Hall was murdered in 2019 um, during a mental health crisis in his neighborhood. He was known by his community. He was known by the police department very well, but he is someone who was not, um, the system failed him. Truly, the system failed him. Um, and I didn't, and I wrote about this, I wrote about this in my book because it's, it, it ties really significantly to the work that I do, but, um, it wasn't until George Floyd was murdered in 2020 that I found out about Miles Hall from 2019. Um, and it was because I saw these flyers all around my neighborhood and to, I had to really take a step back and realize, oh my gosh, I'm in a neighborhood where something happened so personal to me as a black person that I had no clue about until we were all forced to kind of sit down and shut up because of COVID. Um, and so that just that awareness alone gave me a sense of responsibility to reach out and see what I could do to contribute and support. Because at the time I was working for a mental health institution or for a mental health agency that could have helped Miles actually. 
um, that Miles's parents didn't know anything about. And so at that point, I realized, okay, the work that I'm doing is clearly not getting to the people who need it. Um, so how do I square that circle? And I got in touch with Miles's mom, and they're now very close family friends of ours. Uh, they're they're like my, his mom watches my son, and you know I just I love I love the Hall family, and it, it's with the work that we do that we're trying to build out um, an alternative to nine one one. The nine eight eight crisis line in the state of California is actually named after Miles Hall. Um, and we work a lot with the advocacy groups around making 988 more aware, widespread, um, staffed. And, and we also are trying to simultaneously get families who are experiencing significant trauma or mental health crises um, or police violence into therapy. So that's where I feel like my, my work is, is, is kind of paramount in the foundation is kind of getting the mental health treatment to the people who really need it um, and spreading the word as much as I can. This kind of feeds into stigma because I know this is part of, of the Miles Hall Foundation and the mission too, but I want to ask about stigma and get you know your experiences on it. Um, you know, We know stigma is this barrier that kind of stands in the way of folks seeking out treatment because maybe they fear judgment. You know, They don't want to have to wear the scarlet letter for the rest of their life and they, you know, they'd rather kind of um, avoid it. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can share any experiences you've had with stigma either yourself um, you know, in, in treating addiction or stigma that you've witnessed with patients dealing with it on their road to recovery? And what do you think can be done to start kind of dismantling that from all these different angles? Yeah, I'm going to work backwards. So I'm starting with dismantling. And I, I talk about this quite a bit in my book. Language is huge. Um, when it comes down to it, the substance use and addiction world continues to utilize very stigmatizing language. And that is a problem. We have to stop. Um, that's not to say that someone who is in recovery or who historically had a substance use issue wouldn't call themselves an addict. If that's how you identify, that's how you identify. But this goes back to the cultural responsiveness piece. I will respond to that based off of what you prefer. But I'm never going to call someone an addict period. As a professional, that's just not something that I'm going to do. Um, and even, even the terms clean and dirty when we're talking about, um, substance tests, like that's, I don't even use that when I talk about, um, going to the bathroom for my, when I was teaching my son potty training, you know, it was, you, you're either soiled or you're dry, you're, or you're wet or dry. Just neutralizing the language can be so destigmatizing. De and that starts from the top. I mean, our federal, systems are still using abuse in their titles. Uh, so we have SAMHSA, um, we have triple AAAI, um, alcohol, alcoholism, all of these, these federal government agencies are just now trying to shift their names to be more neutral and less stigmatizing like that. That's where we really need to start. Um, and then understanding that there isn't a, um, a substance that's any better than another substance. One of the things that I do a lot is talk about psychedelic assisted therapy and psychedelic treatment. And there's a very clear and early on discrepancy between psychedelics and cannabis, 
even though cannabis technically should be in the psychedelic sphere because of the way that it's developed. I mean, it grows from plants and it has psychoactive properties in some of these, some of these cases, but cannabis is one thing and psychedelics are another. And so I'm not endorsing or negating either or any of them. I'm just saying in order for us to destigmatize, we have to take off the labels of one thing being bad and one thing being good. Um, because that in and of itself comes from like the systemic oppressive, uh, lens that we live in of, oh, well, cocaine is great, but crack is bad. Like, no, they're the same thing. Like, <laughs> let's just be real, you know? Uh, so I think really paying attention to how we differentiate and recognize, like kind of taking the, the mask off and, and stop pretending like something's better than, than something else or not will help with the, the destigmatization of substance use and addiction across the board. Um, and then when it comes to stigma that I've experienced, you know, it's funny that when I was in the affluent area, it was about my race. A lot of people didn't want to work with me because I was black. Um, when I was in the lower SES area, it was because of my perceived age. Uh, what it, an adage that, you know, the black community and other um, historically marginalized communities say black don't crack or, you know, you could, I could be 23 or I could be 83. You don't know. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I had to fight was just being respected in spaces across the board. So being respected in spite of my race, being respected in spite of my perceived age, um, and once I start talking and once I kind of build out my resume, people recognize that I've, I've been around the block and I've done a lot of things and I know what I'm talking about. And so it's unfortunate that I have to do that. I still have to do that in some environments, but not so much anymore. Um, but that was a challenge because my heart was to help, you know, my heart is to support and, and be there. And, um, once I'm dismissed or someone wants to see another provider because they don't like the color of my skin here, we are in 2024, still, um, a challenge. Uh, and then for my clients, the stigma that they've experienced is being, being able to participate in, uh, general mental health groups. So there's this hard line between people who have some form of addiction or substance use history and people who have just mental health issues. And I, I put quotes around the just mental health issues because it's never just mental health. There's there, it's such a, a complicated, um, series and, and group of diagnoses that to put it in one category feels foolish and almost unethical in my opinion. Um, and there is research that shows that kind of doing a co taking a co-occurring approach in addressing both sets of symptoms simultaneously yields more effectiveness and sustainability in recovery. Hmm. It's, I mean, your, your story is pretty incredible. And, um, we have, we we're developing a little bit of a tradition here with first time guests where we like to, we like to close out the show with some words of wisdom. Um, and you've shared a lot of words of wisdom from your experience, but I would love to hear, uh, what advice would you give younger you? So maybe just starting out in your career on your road to addiction treatment. Um, what do you wish that you knew then that you know now? And what wisdom would you impart onto the newer generation of, you know, these addiction medicine uh, treatment 
professionals who are going to see addiction in their practices, who are considering addiction as a, you know, a focus for their career? What would you kind of tell them to keep in mind as they go down that road? Yeah, I love that. Um, I tell my younger self, don't fight it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I mean, when it comes down to it, just don't fight it. Just kind of go with it. Um, because your path is, is kind of set and there's so much work to do and there's enough for all of us. One of the things that I put in my, my website and that I live by is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's an African proverb that I really try to live by is in terms of community and working together to reach a common goal. Um, there are several very well known and respected leaders in our history whose foundational principles were uh, uniting and coming together to achieve a goal for a better society for the future. And I think in my small scope, in my small sphere, um, working in community with other people who are trying to achieve the same thing um, is advice that I would give others. Like pay attention to your strengths and, and what you do well and do that with other people who are passionate about it and, and can do it well also. Um, and, and stay in your lane. <laughs> like if you're good at something, you know, be good at it. Don't feel like you need to do everything. Um, and advice that I'd have for, for people coming up, um, in a perfect world, what I would love to see is that there isn't a, a delineation between substance use and mental health is that they're more, uh, co-collaborating. Co and working together to figure out how we can more holistically treat people um, based off of their identities, based off of what's important to them. So bringing in that cultural responsiveness piece. Um, and I would say, listen, just listen to what people are telling you. If you want to get into this profession and um, you're excited about it, just kind of listen to what people are, are saying and, and see how that fits in with your own sphere of influence and your own aspects of your identity and, and never be too proud to learn something new. Amazing advice. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Also, 2024 ASAM DEI award winner. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, that is very cool. It has been fantastic talking with you. I hope we can convince you to maybe come back on again soon and we can catch up with you again. Absolutely. I would love that. What a great talk. A big thank you going out to Dr. Jones for making the time to uh, come on the show and share you know, so much great information and insight. Um, we have got links to her book in the show notes. You can find out how to get your hands on a copy of that, along with a few other links and uh, resources so that you can learn more about what Dr. Jones has going on and get connected with her. Uh, listen, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, we want you to know that you are not alone. Treatment is available and recovery is possible. Visit the link in our show notes to access patient resources like our physician directory, patient and family support groups, and much more. And this is where I must leave you, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, treat addiction, save lives. 